0: Howdy, folks. Welcome to Sketchy Conversations with John Mills on the 4th. Today, we're chatting with Roderick, a.k.a. Rodcore Palmer of Year of the Dragon and Hope Fiend. We're talking about him almost becoming the lead singer of Fame the More and opening for Red Chili Peppers. So, how's it looking in California?
1: Uh, As far as weather or
0: fires or... Anything and everything. Ooh,
1: well, um... Let's start with COVID. Um, COVID has still punched a big hole in our economy. Uh, They're doing a lot of the live music thing here through drive-ins right now. And it's a moderate success. But I think everybody's kind of itching to get back to uh, actually playing clubs and and doing tours and shows. So, um, you know, from Metallica to play a drive-in shows... uh, how much everybody's kind of itching for things to go back to normal. Um, most of the bigger bands that I know that I'm friends with, they already have a slew of dates in 2020, 2021. So it's going to be kind of interesting to see um, what's going to happen all around because um, you're going to have a dearth of entertainment choices. I mean, the sports franchises are still kind of off kilter. So Um, They're going to be slamming up into each other uh, in the same way they kind of are this year. You're going to have so many concerts available for you to go to. It's kind of like, you know, I almost think people will kind of shut down and not want to go just because they'll have so many choices. So it's going to be interesting um, to see how it all shakes out next year. Um, In terms of the fires for California, California, uh there's still a lot of them burning out out here and it kind of sucks because the air quality is terrible.
0: Hmm. Is the sky still orange out there?
1: Uh for us here in LA, no. Um it's it's pretty clear. You you still see smoke in uh certain isolated spots, and then the bigger issue is just ash flying, you know, all around from the winds. But the skies being orange out here are cool, I think in uh Portland and Seattle and going up that way uh, in Oregon and Washington it's a little bit more troublesome um, and further north like toward San Francisco it's still a big issue up there but we're we're pretty good down here mm,
0: understood I have some friends down in that area and they show me some photos and it is pretty interesting it does you know it is if it you know if it wasn't it is it, you know in a weird way it looks the orange does look kind of cool, but for the reasons why it's a pretty shitty reason why so all yeah, right. from
1: afar it's it definitely cool like those those photos I've seen from San francisco look uh they i mean artistically and aesthetically look you know they look like pieces of art
0: yes they do yes they you know do.
1: It sucks to to say that but i mean it, it just did and it kind of looked cool out here too hmm
0: all right, so how'd you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up a single son of a single parent in uh, mostly South Los Angeles, uh, California, born and bred. Mom's from Texas, as was my my late father. Um, I was a short kid, so I was kind of picked on, and I was very unathletic, so... Uh, When I was a kid, comic books were my big thing. I loved reading. Uh, Me and my mom, as I grew up, used to share books. uh, And I mean adult books, too. So I kind of got an advanced leg in reading right on uh, early. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, uh,
1: When I was a teenager, my mom used to listen to a lot of different music. So it kind of set me up to uh, start listening to stuff outside of the R&B sphere. And then uh, I also got bused from the hood to a school that was, uh, because we were bused, it ended up being a mixed school. So I started having white friends at that school who were, I was like, oh, I found nerds like me. So uh, a couple of them were into comic books like I were, and then they started introducing me to rock. Like, uh, <laughs> funny enough, some of the, the earliest rock I got into was like Super Tramp and, and the Cars. Um, you know, the, the poppier stuff, Pat Benatar. And I didn't feel the inherent soul in some of that stuff. And it sounded, you know, just generic to me. I, I could sense generic early on because the r that I came up on was like Marvin Gaye and Funkadelic and, and Sly and some of the more experimental out there stuff. So I always kind of demanded that for my music. So from there I started transitioning into new waves So that was the Cars, The Knack, um some of the more like pop year but but still proto proto punk stuff. It wasn't punk, it was getting there. And then I found my way to David Bowie, so I was like, okay, kind of get more into this stuff now, which kind of led to Joy Division and Bauhaus and bands like that, which then set the stage for uh going straight into punk and there were these kids in my my high school guy named kenny mizell uh who is now a cop funny enough we have a lot of spirited debates uh these days actually he's a former cop he's an airplane mechanic now Hmm. but we have a lot of spirited debates because i can't understand how he went from being this like very hardcore shaved head punker into uh you know, kind of a conservative guy, and there was another guy named Jeff Long, uh, who was his best friend at that time, who played in. He had a brief time in suicidal tendencies, but he played in another band called Savage Republic. It kind of got some legs for a bit. So I started watching those guys. I just loved the the anti-authoritism or authoritarian. I, had, you know what I'm trying to say. Oh, I do. Um but they were totally anti-authority in everything, the way they dressed, um, They started even not coming to school for a while. Uh, and they, they just looked so cool that even as a black man at that time, which was 81, um, black punkers were a very, very rare, rare breed. It was like seeing the dodo bird. Oh yeah. But, i still wanted in so by the time i became a senior um i started listening to the music more and then i became hungry to go to shows but i was scared because i didn't want to be the only black guy there Mm -hmm. so my white a couple of my white friends there was a guy named scott powell who was my gateway person like to go full-on into punk we started going to shows um But they were just like one off shows with one or two bands. Um, Now, at this time, what would be considered a real punk gig would be like five or six bands in one night. Mm -hmm. And I always say these days they would call it a festival. Oh, yeah. Uh, But you could get that for like 10 bucks. You could go pay 10 bucks and then see like, you know, five, between five and six, or even sometimes eight or nine bands. Because the punk songs were so short, you could fit that many bands on a bill and everybody could play full sets. Yep. Um, now, my first real punk gig was a show that I went to because I liked this girl a lot. And the girl, funny enough, looked white, but she was just very light skinned and black. But she was fully into punk. Um, she had her own fanzine. She, she did a lot of writing and got into all these shows for free. And because I liked her, I went with her to what I consider to be my first real serious gig. It was a Dead Kennedy show. And uh, there was like eight or nine bands on there. It was another band called Sin 34, I remember. Um, oh, my God, there were so many bands I can't even remember. But the thing I do remember is that the Dead Kennedys, after all these bands played, like a lot of the punks were drunk because they were serving beer. And it was at a, a Longshoreman's Hall, a VFW Hall. So they started breaking out the windows, and then somebody called the cops. And the DKs played, I think, a total of two or three songs, and then the cops lopped tear gas in into place. So as the whole room, like imagine, you know, probably about 1,200 people in a room full of tear gas with the doors blocked shut like they actually blocked the door shut so people couldn't run out so we're all pushing against one wall and i remember there was this really hot girl <laughs> and i was pressed against her and i could not move and i oh was God. apologizing profusely and she was like don't worry i get it i just want to get the fuck out of here right now i really don't give a fuck about your dick pressed against my ass so eventually the police opened the doors and everybody starts rushing out and as they're rushing out, I was shocked because there had to be a hundred cops outside and they start beating up on the punks as they came out. And to this day, you know, I grew up in South central LA and I saw a lot growing up there, but I had never seen a Rodney King style beating until that day. I mean, they were beating up kids left, right, and center as they came out and it highlighted to me just how much the LAPD hated punk rock. Like there was an actual war between local punks of, of many cities. I'm sure even back your way. Um, and the police, they, they hated them. I mean, there were, there were punk kids disappearing, um, getting randomly arrested and beat up. It was, it was an actual war because most of the punks at that time hated Reagan uh, hated conservatives so they were targets for the police to randomly mess with and so there was that dynamic too but after that show i went full on i got the leather jacket i, I got a mohawk um, which again for that time period 1982 was like unheard of um and i really felt alone in that scene even though I had friends I had a lot of white friends I was very popular um I had actually developed a reputation as a fighter because I was getting picked on so much in high school that in uh, when I was 16 I started studying martial arts martial arts and punk kind of came into my life at the same time And I got uh, surprisingly good at it because, like I said, I was unathletic growing up, but I just I wanted to learn how to fight and I got really good. So inevitably, almost at every early punk gig I went to, like with few exceptions, somebody eventually would either be like, what the fuck are you doing here? Or they would call me a nigger. So. I had a lot of fights until people learned. You know, I started going to so many shows, people learned who I was and they stopped calling me that and they stopped fucking with me. And then the guys from Fishbone would show up at shows. And the thing about them is that they always mobbed up. There was like the band itself and then like, you know, six or seven of their extra friends. And none of those guys are a hair under six
0: two. Mm.
1: Like literally, they're a very tall band.
0: Yes, I noticed. And Fish
1: in particular was not a guy to be fought like Fish would fight at the drop of a hat if you, you even ran up on him in any way that wasn't cool. And uh he's also a guy that studied fighting and martial arts since forever. He's he's actually uh very respected in the martial arts world. He's a he's a big jujitsu guy right now, but he studied karate and kung fu and some other stuff so um but they they just looked like nobody to be fucked with just think of like between 12 and and 17 like huge black guys showing up at a gig and generally nobody ever fucked with the fishbone crew like ever so it was fun seeing them i didn't really become friends with them until like maybe a couple of years later because you know it's just being the few black guys at these shows, it's just, you know, you gravitate toward each other. Um, but it was always fun to see them roll up in a gig and just see even the gnarliest punk rockers and, and, you know, hardened like crazy punks just avoid them like the plague and make sure that they didn't even look like a threat around them. It was funny. So, uh, those are my early days, and uh, I started playing in bands around that time. Uh, nothing of note, nothing remarkable. I was still getting my feet wet, and it was hard finding. Um, it seemed like all the black musicians like played with or around Fishbone. I couldn't find any other brothers and wanted to play rock. A lot of the bands at that time, you know, you call, they'd hear my voice and assume I was white on the phone. And then I would show up, you know, this was the days before, you know, you had social media, so you couldn't see what a person looked like without actually meeting them. You would call them from an ad that you saw in a newspaper. Um, you would talk, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I would show up and they're like, oh, wait, you're you're black. Er, we have the position, Phil. Yeah, there, oh, there yeah. was a guy just showed up right before you came. And yeah, Sorry. So, uh, I mean, it's always tough, I think, for for guys like us because, you know, it's less of a stigma now. But back then, it was like, on one hand, the white guys don't want to play with you. Uh, on the other hand, it's like, you know, black people seeing what kind of music you like and what you want to play. It's like, oh, you're playing that white boy stuff. Yep. So to, to want to play music like this as a black man at that time. And I think even up to, to as recently as, as 10, 15 years ago, um, was a bit of a challenge. You know, it, it was a bit of, uh, you know, I, I applaud anybody that, that toughed it out to do what they want to do, uh, even to this day. And it's, you know, when you look at, at cats like Lil Wayne, you know, putting rock tracks on their record, even though they're terrible, um, you still, there's still a sense of validation and vindication uh, about sticking it out. And when you see performers like Santi Gold or, or Janelle Monet to an extent, um, uh, Cerebral Balsy, uh, you know other bands like that 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 are now having a much easier time, and and it's funny because I've met some of these guys when being out on tour with Year of the Dragon, and hearing their stories of the of woe and and hardship. You know it's kind of funny funny to listen to them because you're like, man, you have no clue about how hard this shit was between 1982 and 88. You know that was you know, what some of us went through in that time period, like what you went through in this time is, is absolutely nothing. Um, because it was, you know, I I think of, I can't even imagine as an old man now, like going through that and, and actually living to tell the tale between the cops, um, between getting called nigger at the shows, between living in south central Los Angeles and having to fight the local gangsters in the middle of the crack epidemic when they are more likely to shoot you than actually physically fight you um it was a crazy crazy time if you were white never mind being black and being in the hood so I just i think back on it now and I'm like wow that's that's amazing i even got through all of that intact um and and have a story to tell
0: now oh yeah you know you remind me a bit of a friend of mine by the name of daryl actually who grew up in you know in the metal scene in baltimore and his story sounds a lot like sounds a lot like yours you know and trust me um Here's the here's what okay, I always say I was kinda of privileged to have access to gear and everything, right? So okay, I can't find a drummer. All right. Hello drum machine, you know? Um, just do stuff like that. Can't find a keyboard player. Well, what I need to do right now isn't so keyboard heavy, so maybe we mess with this stuff, maybe we can crap on a melody. And I play guitar and I wouldn't say I play bass, but I can operate one. I put it that way. Right. So I just started putting out um like solo stuff and whatnot just so i can say it exists you know but like that being said um you know my influences at that time before i went to the full band thing i mean not that usual like it was more of a like stuff like Godflesh, nine inch nails you know three six mafia two stuff like that but also had like other right. you know like other full band influences like funkadelic the ramones and whatnot you know but what are your musical influences
1: um, for me, uh, if I go back to when I was younger, it's always been socially conscious music that pushes boundaries. So um, it started, my earliest memories are of, of listening to Marvin Gaye's What's Going On over and over again, which is a record that is amazing to me that you could play it right now and every message and every one of those songs could apply to, to right now um moving on from that it would be sly stone um in the 70s more like slave uh brick uh cameo some of the bands and cool in the gang early cool in the gang not the the later you know popular stuff
0: the jazz funk stuff but
1: yeah the the stuff that was pushing you know heavy duty boundary so it kind of prepped me eventually to to kind of transition into the stuff that I started listening to going into punk now if you ask me to just be like musically what has made the biggest difference in your life i would say marvin gaye i would say funkadelic um, i would say the beatles uh, Electric Light Orchestra is a huge <laughs> surprising influence on me. It's a band I love dearly. Uh, and then moving on to Joy Division, um, Bad Brains, Fishbone, um, Early Metallica, uh, Early Slayer, um, Dead kennedy's black flag for sure henry rollins is actually the the first guy i saw um that didn't make me feel like punk was a joke or a pose um i'd seen a few bands to and and they didn't make me want to be a front man henry rollins and funny enough i had listened to bad brains first but i hadn't seen them yet And black flag was local So I saw them once before Henry came in. And when I saw them with Henry, I was like, okay, this guy is not kidding. And this is, if I'm going to be a front man, this is what it's about. And funny enough, in three weeks, I saw Black Flag, Fishbone, and Bad Brains, like back to back each week. And after that, I was like, that's, I want to be a front man. I, I want to do all this shit. I want to work these demons out on stage. I want to abuse and hurt my body. It just, to, to get out like all the pain that's in my heart and make people feel it and, and do whatever I have to, to entertain them. So front man wise, I would say those were, were transcendent moments for me and, the front men of all those bands are, are my biggest influences to this day. Angelo, HR uh, and Henry, without a doubt, and and Keith Morris as well. Um in general music, generally speaking, my influences are still to this day all over the map. But for front men and who influences me in that area, those three without a doubt.
0: You know, taking back to karate, I'm not surprised you practice because I'll never forget when I saw you. I'll never forget when I saw you with Year are the Dragon*, and I noticed a couple of stances you took. I'm like, wait a minute, this guy knows something.
1: I do. I know a lot, actually. I probably, <laughs> I I like to say at this age I'm at now, um, I've probably forgotten more martial arts than some people will ever know. Um, and it came in handy a lot. Uh, again, I, I'm lucky in that because I had tried the art I studied initially was one called Kung Fu San Su, spelled S A N S O O, and I had studied it because I had tried boxing and I I was just too awkward and could couldn't get it together. I had Roddy. And I was actually not bad at karate, but I just felt like it wouldn't work on the streets. And the same with judo. And this particular style of kung fu, it's a southern style, um, had a heavy emphasis on dirty street fighting. So I went to a class, and my first class that I watched, um, one of the techniques was hitting the guy like in the groin. And when he bent over, like, hitting him in the throat, he was on the ground, sitting on his chest and poking him in the eyes. So I'm like, you know what? That's some shit that could work. And when I got into it, I went full bore. And it was just on time because that's when I I would start going to shows, like, a year later. And I would start using it and actually seeing, like, what techniques worked and what didn't. And I got hit and I got beat and I took some punches, but I never dropped a fight. And since I've started studying martial arts to this day, I've never dropped a fight. I've gotten, uh, here's an interesting thing about violence. So in the parking lot of one show, um, I was drunk and I squared off with this Korean kid because I had tried to hit on his girlfriend and to this day his legs were so quick and i don't know if if it's just because i was drunk that night or if he really was that fast but i would see him lift his foot up and then i would just feel it hit my face and there was nothing to do and he did this so much like my face was a bloody mess like my nose was squirting blood he had opened up a cut on my forehead So it literally looked like my face was was just bathed in blood. And I couldn't get close enough to touch him. So he kicked me one time and I just faked and dropped to my knees like he had really done some damage. He wasn't hurting me, but he was opening me up and I was getting frustrated that I couldn't touch him. So I fell to my knees and there's a crowd of people watching and he's getting ready to do his whole Bruce Lee shit. And he pauses, sets up, starts to do this kick, and I raised up and I grabbed <laughs> his ball so hard that I popped <laughs> one of them. Oh shit! Never forget how that felt? It felt like a huge grape, like exploding in my hand. Oh, my God. And he bent over and started screaming, and I beat the fuck out of him. <laughs> And I really shouldn't say that I hit him twice and he was unconscious. I think he was just in so much pain that I hit him in the right spots two times and he was out. But the interesting thing about violence is that I always say if you put him and me together the next day and you looked at our faces, he would probably have a bruise on his jaw and my face looked like somebody hit me a bunch of times with a baseball bat. But technically, I won the fight.
0: Yeah, you did.
1: You know, and I have both my nuts, and he only has one now.
0: So, so <laughs> yeah, you won.
1: So I won, but it's just, you know, it, it really made me look at the whole thing differently. And I was like, I should probably try to avoid uh, fighting whenever possible. <laughs> so you know, up, up to this second I do, but, um, you know, I live in Los Angeles and, and, you know, sometimes encounters, I even up to, I think the last altercation I had was actually, it was last year, really last year. And I'm, you know, I'm closing in on my mid fifties.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but it cool because on one hand i was like you know I'm, i can still fucking fuck somebody up this is great i'm an old guy you know i'm an old man i'm out of shape uh so this is kind of cool for me but it was it was nice to know um that i still got it
0: <laughs> yes i just Especially realized the- i can
1: am- i i'm sorry
0: I just realized I could have made a good drunken master joke earlier, but you know what? For a guy that is basically crushing with his nutsack. I'm not going to fucking do that.
1: (laughs) That, that was a one-off. My nut crushing days are are over unless, you know, like I said, these days, I don't know how things are going. Um, it's kind of a scary time in our country. And I am really hoping like right now, despite how people are frustrated in Louisville, that, uh, you know, they keep their calm and, and don't let it get crazy because it just seemed like even before they announced that verdict, when they called a state of emergency, like, yeah. come on, man, and calling the National Guard, like, early, um, it's kind of like they're almost daring people to, to, to get nuts. So I'm hoping everybody stays calm and collected. And, you know, Some of the people that don't live there that are just saying burn it down. I'm like, come on, you guys, you don't fucking live there. You don't have to excuse my language again. I'm trying to work on that. Um, But you don't have to deal with the repercussions of of so-called burning it down. And with the National Guard in there, their job is literally and I saw this during the L.A. riots um, when they came here. Their job is to shoot you if you act up, not to tell you to stop, not to arrest you. Their job is to shoot you. And I will never forget uh, when we had the Rodney King riots here and they called in the guard. They ran into this Mexican who couldn't speak English and he was out past the curfew. And uh, they were telling him he needs to go inside. and He was being drunk and belligerent and threw a beer can at him and they lit his ass up.
0: Oh, shit.
1: Um. So there, when the guard comes, you know, I tell people in other cities, like, it is no joke. They are not there to arrest you. They are there to shoot you if you appear to be acting up or breaking the law. So Louisville, uh, keep my fingers crossed, everything goes well with that. And people stay calm because at this point. Um. I don't believe protesting is an effective strategy anymore anyway. So that's just me. Um, I think it's run its course. It doesn't really do a whole lot other than bring awareness. Um, oh, and do you have an app called the Citizen app?
0: Uh, No, I do not.
1: So the Citizen app is an app that you can download and... It will tell you what's going on in your area, or you can set it up to tell you what's going on, like nationwide for certain things. So, um, I have the Citizen app, and just as we were talking just now, um, it sent me an alert saying protests are popping up all over the country about this. I haven't been inside for a while; I've been on the road, so I haven't been watching the news or anything. But yeah, protesting is not. It's it's not gonna do anything. It's a waste of time.
0: I'm seeing a parallel between a lot of like old school hardcore guys getting into Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and also you having a martial arts background. Is this is this a coincidence or is this an eventual?
1: Um, I don't think it's a coincidence. A lot of them are gun owners too. Um, I think just the inherent violence of even being in the pit, um, lends itself to you wanting to physically know what to do to, to protect yourself. Um, and also for, for fighting at shows. I mean, I don't know uh what it's like for kids now i know back in my day like for example mike muir of suicidal tendency um before they were even thought of as a band and up into their early days that dude was known around the scene as a violent maniac like he would fight you at the drop of a hat um he was a guy that you worried about that you know, when you fight, you generally know you're going to walk away from a fight. and You know, there's going to be a winner and a loser. Um, he was so violent in his fights that you were kind of scared it could go to like another level. So when he and, and the suicidals, as a lot of the guys that followed the band were known as then would show up, you know, looking like Mexican gang members in their do rags and half button shirts and whatnot. Um, there was sure to be violence. And I think a lot of people in general, just, you know, just for that kind of stuff, ended up studying martial arts just to be ready for it because there was a, toward the end of the, the popularity of the first run of punk, And then particularly the first run of Hardcore, it just, it got crazy violent. I don't know how it was in other cities, but in L.A., um, fans of suicidals would show up in groups at shows, and they were known as the suicidals. And then there was a whole other uh, punk gang called the Lads that used to kind of run wild here. And the Lads and suicidals would pretty much meet up at shows just to fight. And that often caused shows to either get closed down or it just made them just a lot more, a lot less fun Um, because guys were getting in the pit and they were starting to have weapons and using their spikes to cut people and whatnot. So um, it was actually what drove me away from from going to shows after a few years, because I'm like, I'm already living in South Central. And I deal with gangs there and gang violence there. I, I come to shows to get away from this shit, not to see people, you know, doing it there as well. So it, it just became a real bummer. But that's the impetus, at least here in SoCal, um, for a lot of people to get into these uh, martial arts things. And, you know, I met Harley Flanagan of the Crow mags uh, a couple of years ago. Uh and he's a big jujitsu guy as well, as well as a few others I know. And I think some people are just that are super violent like that. Uh, funny enough, the martial arts helped them to settle down and kind of calm down. Um, and I think for guys like him, it, it's been more helpful than than harm, if that makes any sense.
0: Oh, totally, because that's why I kind of brought it up, because I know Harley and also um, Harley Flanagan and John Joseph, they're both into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and I know Harley's right. teaching it now, you know, and yeah. that's why I kind of brought it up because, you know, I was, I'm seeing a parallel there too. So I just wanted to see your thoughts. All right. But back to it though. Um, all right. Is it true that you were actually in the running to be, cause you mentioned Mike Muir earlier and reminded me. Is it true that you were in the running to be the lead singer for Faith No More?
1: I was. So, um, and <laughs> it's kind of funny because you tell people and they don't believe it. And I, I used to rarely bring that up, but then there was a, a biography written. Um, oh my God. And I cannot remember the name of it off the top of my head. Um, hold on one second uh, do I have it here and I do not I had it on my nightstand I put it up but uh, I want to say it's A Small Affair maybe um, it's written by a guy named Adrian Hart uh, his last name is spelled H-A-R T as in Tom E um, I want to say it's called A Small Affair
0: okay.
1: and it actually mentioned in the book uh, me being in the running and it was like oh I'm validated OK. But uh, what happened was that uh, there was a friend of mine that used to deliver pizzas and he delivered a pizza to Faith No More singer, uh, the original singer, Chuck Mosley. Rest in peace. Rest in peace. And and at that time, the guy was like, when are you guys playing again? And Chuck was like, I'm not in that band anymore. And nobody knew it at that point. It was uh, it hadn't been announced at all because ah. their plan was just to try to find. Uh, maybe some other local because they they've been through this before. They had tried like three or four different singers before they even got to Chuck. So for them, this was just a, another go round in the the vocal sweepstakes, and uh, they really were trying to get uh, Chris Cornell. Really? So that was an, Yeah, that was another reason they didn't announce, it. and they even went so far as to jam with him a few times. Uh, but his style didn't mesh with what they were doing. So, you know, it just kind of washed out. So then they decided to go on an official hunt. And what happened was that Mike Patton had been in the running already because uh, Jim Martin, uh, their old guitar player, had uh, a Mr. Bungle tape and he loved it. And he loved the vocal style. And it was a little bit more on the hardcore side. But he was like, I love this guy. I think I want him. So they were like, well, let's try a couple of other people. And they did. And I made that call immediately on a whim. Once my friend told me that Chuck was out, I didn't know about any of this other stuff till later. I'm like, well, fuck it. Let me just try it. So I called Slash Records. Um, I talked to their producer Matt Wallace, and I was like, uh, you know, I hear Chuck's gone. I want to audition. So he was like, well, come down to my office and let me have a look at you. So I took the bus <laughs> that day to their office, uh, the office of Slash Records, and he saw me. And at that time, I had a dreadlocked mohawk, very similar to Chuck. So right away, he's like, okay, he's got the look. Now let's see if he can sing. So he set up an audition. Um, I went to my grandfather and I borrowed a Greyhound bus fare and I took, uh, the six hour bus ride to San Francisco. Uh, I met Billy Gould, their bass player, who at the time lived with Roddy Bottom, their keyboard player in an abandoned pet hospital. So I meet them there. Uh, they had a bunch of other roommates in this one building. They were all, you know, punkers and artists and and writers and whatnot. It's kind of an artist collective. Oh, yeah. Um, He took me up to the roof. And on the roof, they still had these cages that had been abandoned when the the pet hospital moved to another location of sick pets they didn't want to take with them. So there was all these mummified pets or mummified animals in these cages. And I'm like, why in the F is he showing me this? I don't want to. It was creepy.
0: Yeah, it is. But it Cool.
1: You know, so I'm like, yeah,
0: OK, well,
1: yeah. Um, they had a crappy rehearsal spot in Richmond, which is in San Francisco, like the hood hood, like, you know, southeast. Um, so we go down there and we went really early because they're like, we can't be down here at night. Uh, it's too crazy. A lot of killings and drug selling and gun stuff. So um, we went. I auditioned, Um, they were like, okay, well, do you have two or three more days available? Because at first audition, we did just, you know, Old Faith Memoir songs. And so they had a lot of the stuff for the real thing um, already written musically. And they were like, okay, so you sound good on this old stuff. Why don't you put some lyrics on this new stuff overnight? We're going to come back tomorrow. and We're going to run it down again. So I did that, and they taped it, and they really liked it. And they were like, you know, you're the the only guy um, out of the few that we've tried that we've given this much run. So we want you to know you're a definite candidate. And uh, that was great. So after the second day of rehearsals, we went to lunch, and it was funny because they hadn't heard of James Addiction, which was a band that was kind of blowing up in L.A. at that time. So I'm like, check these guys out. And then they were like, cool, but you need to check out Soundgarden. And so they were the ones that turned me on to Soundgarden. They turned me on to uh, the earliest. They had a pre-release copy of Injustice for All. Uh, because Jim Martin, their guitarist, was best friends with James Hetfield. So I got to hear that before it came out, which was great. Um, and there were a couple, they turned me on to Mudhoney Honey. Um, a couple other bands too that I, I had not listened to up to that point. Um, so I got uh, one more day of auditions and then I drove back to LA. I rode back to LA actually with a friend of mine that was driving back. Um, and it was cool because they were actually seriously considering me, but Jim Martin was like, We need this guy, Mike Patton. He's like, I'm not. I'm not dealing with anybody else but Mike Patton. This is who I want. This is who I think is going to be better suited to the the band. So he was pretty insistent about it. And they they rightfully went along with the right guy. But it was a fun experience. I got to learn what a successful band does and doesn't do. And uh, I picked up some habits from that audition and some great advice that I took back. And I applied... uh, to the band I was in at that time and have applied to any other band I've been in since.
0: Knowing that you had a connection with Fishbone earlier and I was thinking of Year of the Dragon, what was your tenure like with them?
1: With, uh, with Fishbone or Year?
0: Year of the Dragon.
1: Um, it was a life-changing experience. I, there are, two major life-changing experiences for me um, in terms of musing, actually in terms of life too. Uh, one was that Faith No More audition and the second one was my time in Year of the Dragon. Um, now, funny enough, Year of the Dragon started uh, late in life for me. I had been plugging away in local bands for a while um i didn't have any success with them and the frustration with it led me to a drug addiction because i just didn't want to face the fact that maybe i wasn't good enough and this wasn't something i was supposed to be doing um i was out of a a relationship with a girl that i thought i was going to marry that was uh concurrent with all of my musical issues. So, um, I became a typical black male statistic and started smoking crack. And that led me to losing like everything in my life. Uh, I went to jail behind it a few times. Um, I accidentally, I got so bad that I stole my mother's car and in doing so Um, I accidentally almost ran over her and killed her and thankfully she tripped over her feet and that kept that from happening. So, uh, when I went to rehab, I gave all of that up and I was just like, I'm going to live a normal life and get a regular job and do all that stuff. So, uh, I started playing music for fun when I got cleaned up and it was just supposed to be like a fun thing. And a friend of mine told me that he knew Tracy Singleton and that Dirty Walt and him were leaving Fishbone. So he was like, they're going to reboot Tracy's original black metal band Sound Barrier, which was a a big band here in the 80s on the the hair metal scene. But they're going to make it like more hardcore and punk and they're not going to do the... Hair metal stuff anymore. So they're looking for a second vocalist now. So he was like, Walt's going to do it. Uh, Tracy's going to do it. Uh, Sound Barrier's original bassist Stanley is going to do it. And they're going to find a drummer because their the original drummer, Dave Brown, didn't want to do it without the original members. So uh, my friend was like, You should audition to be their second vocalist. And I did. Right before that, I actually started Year of the Dragon as a kind of like just studio thing. So I wrote a bunch of songs. I recorded them. Um, I put them out with no fanfare and it didn't do anything. And I was OK with that because it was it was supposed to be for fun. So there was actually a Year of the Dragon record out with no Walt on it. And uh, once it kind of fell flat, I was like, OK, I tried that it didn't work. I'm cool with that. So I got with Walt and Tracy and Stanley on the Sound Barrier project. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. The music is great. We recorded a bunch of stuff that I I hope will see the light of day someday. Um, It won't be a sound barrier because those original guys got back together and they're doing their own thing. But we did some amazing, amazing tracks, and I was looking forward to it. But then uh, the bassist, Stanley, had a son that had sickle cell, and his son unfortunately passed away uh, while we were getting everything together. And so Stanley was like, I can't play music. I don't want to do anything right now. I just need a second. And we were like, cool. So that turned into months. And it went from us recording literally almost every day and doing something with music every day to nothing. And so now I'm like, well, fuck, you know, I got all hyped up. I didn't even want to play music anymore or or try to make a stab at it for a living. Um, And now I'm, I'm like worked up thinking like maybe we could do something. So I talked to Walt and I was like, Walt, while we're waiting for Stanley to kind of get his bearings and do something again, let's just record a few songs ourselves, put it out and see what happens. And he was like, cool, well, what do you want to call it? And so Walt and I uh, were both born in 1964, which is the year of the dragon. Uh, we're actually only 10 days apart in our birthdays. Our birthdays are both in November. And uh, I was like, you know what? Um, I kind of did a studio thing and called it Year of the Dragon. Um, I think it's a cool name. Why don't we do it under that name? And Walt was like, whatever. So I asked Tracy, like, Tracy, can I write some songs with you and record them real quick? Just five, five or six. And Tracy was like, sure. You know, I'm bored, too. And, you know, I kind of want to work, too. So. We did that. We put our EP out. Um, <laughs> I was surprised because I figured playing with two guys that had played with Fishbone was going to be a shoe in That we were going to sell out shows and everything was going to happen. And it was going to be like easy peasy. And I will never forget our first show after we put out our EP. And we played to a total of six people. And all of them were Fishbone fans, but you know, when you think of really who sings for Fishbone, 90% of the people are going to say Angelo is the guy, and they'll see and come to anything he does. Um, Dirty Walt didn't get the same respect to me. Um, But one of the things I feel privileged in is that in the 10 years we were together, Really, Year the Dragon has been the most successful post foam band of any solo member. I can see that. Uh, we have played festivals. Um, we've toured. Um, you know, and you've been at a couple of those shows. Some of those shows had, you know, not that many people, but some of those shows were like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, It was a crazy run Um, because before we got to that, there was a a couple of years where I was still like, fuck, this is not working. Um, But it it just took sticking it out and figuring out like the angles and working a little harder and getting over. I had to really take like two or three years to get over like. I've got to work like this is my band. I can't work like this is a fishbone thing and i'm thinking people are gonna run to it because Walt's in this band it's not gonna it's not happening so when i got over that and i really put in the work um everything turned around almost overnight and uh we got those shows and we you know we played with living color we play with bad brains we played that that red hot chili pepper show Um, We toured, we played those festivals with Killswitch Engage and and Dillinger Escape Plan and uh, Unwritten Law and, and all these other bands. Like, we've done more than any fishbone act or fishbone associated act. Trulio has not done what we've done uh, any Angelo project has not done what we've done in terms of the the touring and the, the festivals, especially, and the support gigs. Um, we were looked at as a completely separate thing um, in our own right. And we worked hard. And, you know, I always will respect and thank and love Dirty Walt for sticking it out as long as he did with me. Because he could have at any point... Uh, pull the plug and been like, hey, man, this isn't working. But he was the guy that was always like, you know what, just chill. I know it doesn't look good now, but we just got to work hard. We just got to be good. We just have to be ready. And in the early days, I was like, fuck, this, this makes no sense. Like, I don't even know why he's still, like, doing this. But in the end, he was right. You know, it was literally all we had to do was work hard be ready and you know the doors just eventually open with all the hard work
0: speaking of speaking of rare chili peppers how was the opening for them because that was like an arena right
1: it was an arena um so when you are a musician and you think of like the pinnacle of success, like I think most of us think it's, it's playing in an arena. Um, that was a true learning experience that night. And I don't think I really enjoyed it the way I could have because I was so busy studying and trying to soak in and, and learn. Like, what does it take to get to this point? And so I really didn't have as much fun as I should have. What was interesting, though, is a couple of things. First of all, to this day, that show is the most money I've made during doing the the least amount of work. Like, we played a 20-minute set, made $4,000. So you can only imagine, and we were one of two opening acts, so you can only imagine what those guys get paid. Um they had turned the Staples center, which is the basketball re- arena, the Lakers play in. Uh, the whole backstage area was two separate areas. One was for crew and opening acts, So we had an entire, like almost 2,800 foot square foot space of catered oh. food. Um, and they gave us these tickets we could use uh once but i mean they really weren't paying attention and they didn't seem to care so uh we were eating all night back there we we're eating a couple of our guys that drink we're getting drunk and we had a ball on their side they're all vegans so they had a separate vegan chef set up a makeshift kitchen right next to the Lakers locker room and this guy's cooking all this eggplant stuff and this fancy schmancy stuff and serving them personally and i was like they can afford all they make so much fucking money that they can afford this setup they have two separate setups one for the stage and crew and a guy that just travels with them and cooks for them specifically i was like this is insane um so i was studying that and then I was so caught up in all that, that by the time we actually had to go up on stage and perform, like I was already blown away during sound check and just looking out at that empty arena and just being like, holy shit, this is what you work for your entire life as a musician. And I'm about to get on this stage. I mean, I'm not the headliner by any means or anything like that, but I'm still going to be on this stage playing. It was surreal, man. It was, I literally felt like I wanted to throw up and it took me like halfway through the first song to just loosen up and just be like, you know what? I earned this. I'm up here. Fuck it. I got a job to do. Yeah. So after I did that, it was, it was all easy peasy after that, but it was just, it was weird because we only played 20 minutes. Uh, we stayed there the whole night but the experience to me was a blur um, and it was just whatever so I to me the, the pinnacle uh, show or opening experience was playing with the bad brains hmm. that was uh, oh god that was one for the books that was amazing which year? That would be two thousand two thousand twelve so we did the Chili Pepper show, and then in December we did two two bad brain shows and the first one was in Orange County, which would be uh kind of similar to where we played when we were in Baltimore. It's kind of not in Baltimore but it's, it's a little like, further off the track
0: like outside of it yeah
1: exactly so that show was a lot of fun because hr actually came up uh during one song that we have called simple man i don't know if you know that song or ahead, not. i do um so when we were playing that he actually just casually comes out on stage and just starts dancing and i'm like what the fuck man this is surreal So that show was a lot of fun. And then I got to chat and get to know Daryl and and, and Doc for the first time. Um, And then they didn't see us play. They just, they were hanging out in their thing and just doing like whatever they do. Um, The next show, which was in the heart of Hollywood uh, at a place called the Fonda Theater, they actually watched our whole set. And that to me was like, you know something special because they actually came to us afterward and gave us big props and daryl actually was straight up like if you guys ever signed to a label or get some serious money um i want to produce you so just let me know and i was like shit that that's thank you um and also at that show like everybody came out because they they play so rarely out here um and almost always, when they come out here, is for a festival. That's that's actually the last one-off gig they did. Um, I met Juliette Lewis that night, who was surprised me at how tall she is in person. She's almost six feet. Wow. I met uh, Travis Barker, who played with the other opening band,
0: H2O. Um. Really, he sat in with them. He did. H2O, the hardcore um, and- band. Yes, out of New York. Yep, Travis Barker was playing with them.
1: He was playing with him. He only sat in for two songs.
0: Oh, okay, okay.
1: But I guess he's like a big fan of the band, and and he knows them well, and they know him. So, oh, okay, it like a big... all right,
0: that makes sense.
1: Um, but there was a gang of of just old school and new school hardcore. The bassist from uh, Green Day was there. Um, got to meet him. It it was just a big ass party masquerading as a concert. And that night will always stick out to me. That one and opening for Living Color. Um, those two shows will always stick out to me as being super special because the bands actually watched us. They didn't just have us on, they watched us, they gave us props, they gave us love. Um you know like i said daryl offered to produce us in living color after we opened for them once um actually offered for us to open for them again on another swing but we were in las vegas playing a weed festival um and we were so honored with that we're like can we because las vegas is like a six hour drive from la so we're like trying to plot it like maybe we can uh play the festival and get back to LA and hustle and, and try to open for them too, but we're like, nah, we're not. We're not gonna push it.
0: Yeah. Wait, was the Bad Brain show at the observatory in Orange County? The first
1: one at the observatory, yes. I
0: saw a clip of that. And I saw a clip of that uh, when when the brains were doing stuff off the uh Into the Future album and that was a great that was a great set from what I saw yeah so tell us more about your other project or newer project Hope fiend
1: So Hope fiend um, was kind to uh, kind of my way of of going back to the idea I had of Year of the Dragon before Walt came, which was I don't want to just do music um, I want to combine it with art. And also activism, especially right now. Um, so it's kind of something that's still in the construction period. We had uh, our first show was opening up for suicidal tendencies last year, and we had a festival set for March of this year that would have had us playing with Fishbone, uh, Voodoo Glow Skulls, uh, um. Oh, who was the headliner? We had a pretty big headliner, too. It was a great festival. So I was really bummed when COVID just kind of took all that out. Yes. Uh, we went on lockdown, like, the weekend that show was supposed to happen. And it kind of killed uh, a bunch of other stuff that was in the works. But everything is looking promising for next year.
0: Okay.
1: Um, so it's pretty much just a continuation of of some of the stuff I was doing with The Dragon. Um, it's getting a little heavier. Um, I have a mandate now for music for me spiritually and for other reasons where I don't curse in songs anymore. Okay. Uh, as you can see working on that, my personal life, but it actually means something to me to be able to get a message across, uh, without using curse words. So that's a big thing for me. Um, but it's just kind of expanding, uh, more musically on the hardcore slash punk slash thrash slash, uh, even bebop jazz thing that, that we were working on in Year of the Dragon. And, uh, again, uh, trying to mesh with activism and, and take it to another level because I miss music, uh, as being an active form of activism uh it seems like rage against the machine uh somewhat successfully did it and was the last band to kind of sort of do it but you know now they've kind of devolved into an oldies act
0: yeah Uh, yeah
1: and it's you know to me if you know some of these bands are trying drive-in movie shows I'm like, that's the obvious contender to do that, especially since we were planning to get back together anyway. I'm like, why aren't these guys out there being a voice right now? So I can't even take them seriously as much as I love the band and I actually like them a lot. um, If you're not releasing new music or trying to tackle what's going on in the world, even with your older stuff, I can't take it as anything but a cash grab pretty much it's a little disheartening um but uh i want to take it to another level anyway you know i want to my vision of hope fiend eventually is doing stuff like uh having food drives at shows um signing up voters at shows doing stuff like that um having people come to a show and having easels set up where they can actually do art live while, you know, they're watching music. Um, And then featuring art that fans have done on our websites and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there's a whole concept and idea and I can't get too much into it. Um, We are working on a video now that's going to be kind of different and crazy when you see it. And it should debut in the next probably two months or so. Um, I'm trying to push everything as far into the future as possible to align with us being able to actually play shows. Um, But we have some pretty exciting stuff lined up. It's going to be very different. It's going to be some stuff you've never seen. And uh, I'm excited to get it out there that's that's pretty much the long and short of what i can say about it at this point
0: okay all right although you're more of a singer i've seen you play guitar will we see you play guitar on hope fiend in the future
1: uh if i do it'll only be in the studio i have zero interest in in playing guitar live and it's really the guitar serves two purposes for me um, one is in my personal time just to relax and chill out it's it's my form of meditation when I just sit and play and the other is to use for songwriting as a tool for songwriting and those are my only two purposes for guitar um, I don't want to play and sing I hate doing that it's it's my brain is not wired to do it well Uh And I've never had an interest in it. I've always liked the idea of a power trio. I don't even want a second guitarist. Uh, I'm not interested in playing in a band with two guitars. I've always liked the idea of bass, drums, guitar, vocal. And we all, you know, make that connection together and do what we do best. So, um, yeah, that's, that's about the long and short of what happens with guitar in any project I'm involved in at this point.
0: Okay. All right. I remember you taking a break from music and going into writing. Um, to tell yeah. us more about that.
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, years ago, um, I was in a stressful relationship with my oldest son's mom. And to combat that, um, I just started casually working on a book. And eventually four years after that, I finished the book. Uh, put it out independently, and it did all right. Um, it didn't make any major waves, but the, the problem with me in writing is through trial and error, good advice, and uh, just good old-fashioned hard work, I figured out the music thing in the span of the 10 years I was in Year of the Dragon, or close to 10 years, about nine and a half years. Uh, with writing, I haven't figured out the the ins and outs of marketing and promotion. So my book did about as well as it could for someone who knows nothing about how to promote uh, novels or, or how to push my name out there as a writer. And I've actually written uh, two more books since then, but I haven't done anything about Publishing or, or trying to put it out there. Um, in my dream world, I would find an agent who would find uh, a publisher house, you know, at that point. But what's happening, uh, I had actually had a, a conversation with a fairly successful writer uh, who is the parent of a kid who hangs out with my son. And Based on what she told me, it looks like publishers are doing what record companies are doing and that they want you to do all the heavy lifting and do all the hard work first. And if you make yourself a success on your own, then they want to swoop in and sign you and and take you to another level. Uh, But for me, I only have room and time for that, especially at the age I'm at uh, still as a husband and father, uh, on top of everything else with music to do that only with music. I can't separate and do that with writing, but writing, uh, is still something that's very important to me. Um, I got enough positive feedback with the first book to where I definitely will probably at some point sit down and try to figure out what to do with the other two, uh, but the focus right now for me is more music than writing
0: okay i feel you because you know i like to say i dabble in writing actually my whole process is to just let it out almost dare i say Gonzo journalism style even if i'm writing some fiction i always try to take it from that kind of Gonzo journalist style like you know like i've always try to write like fear and love in las vegas you know or fear and love right. in the campaign trail like that's like one of my biggest influences or stuff like, you know, guys like Ralph Bakshi or something like that, you know, oh, yeah, like I try to write, like, cause I grew up on stuff like heavy traffic. I was not a Disney kid. Well, I used to be, but then <laughs> Japanese animation and, um, Frista cat and heavy traffic said, no, let me tell you what the real world's like, motherfucker. <laughs> so it changed everything. I was like, cause I'll put it this way. The way, I, cause I, it was kind of weird. I saw like heavy traffic the first time. It was like maybe. Is this movie came in 1972, and I'm like, well, shit, this is kind of awkward. It's, I'm like, Michael, I can really relate to Michael right here. It was quite uncomfortable.
1: I, I feel the on that one, though.
0: You know? Shoot. So, yeah, it's like, so I always try to grab those, those are my literary influences and watching, like, old wrestling stuff, you know, like, you know, like, I try to write, like, how, look, you know, some wrestler, somebody cutting a promo or something like that. That's, like, where my writing influences come from. Like, and I always felt embarrassed about that because they're not the, the traditional ones. Like, I can't say that bald ones that wasn't influenced me. It's like, no, nah, my stuff's way grittier and way weirder, you know? Well,
1: I mean, I, I consider writing to be like music. It's you, everybody has their own voice. Yeah. Uh, no, and there are no two that are alike. All that matters is that you stay true to whatever your voice is and you know mm-hmm. run with that. there there's no and especially with what you're talking about there's nobody doing anything like that right now and you know you may have a market for it so I, i'm always like you know if you feel you do no harm in trying it
0: oh yeah because so, i was working on this one series it was basically everybody hates chris but narrated by jim norton that's the best way to describe it. Right. <laughs> I mean that's all, I mean it was stuff based on like even if it wasn't like actual incidents, the energy was still there. Right. You know. So No,
1: that's that's something I think you should run with. That's just my personal opinion.
0: Thanks. That was Roderick Rodcore Palmer, great chatting with him. Check out the albums Five Fingers of Death and *Bluntface Face Karma wherever you can download music. I'd love to have them on in the future.